Lord, we thank you. We thank you for caring for us, for coming into this world, for revealing yourself in such an incredible way, for expressing your love for us, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending into heaven and sending to us your Holy Spirit. Lord, you are more than worthy of all our worship and all our praise. As we continue to worship you now in the understanding of your word, we ask that you would speak into our hearts and minds and lives. I pray that through your spirit, you will touch each and every one of us in the ways that you want to touch us. And I pray, Lord, that as a result, we may live more completely for you. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. From June 1994 through October 1995, the murder trial of the century took place. All eyes in America were watching as high drama played out in the courtroom on TV. Former football star and celebrity O.J. Simpson was on trial for the double murder of his former wife and her friend. When the verdict was announced, it was the most watched event in TV history. For 30 minutes, over 150 million viewers tuned in. Researchers estimate that more than 75% of U.S. adults actually saw it. That's 25% more people watching that trial than the most watched Super Bowl just to put it in perspective. This morning, as we return to our study in Acts, Unleashed, and how God's word from it can inspire and help us to carry out our mission together as a church and as, as individuals, we see that the fledgling church was caught up in high drama. There was surprise, conflict, intrigue, and high stakes. At the time of Jesus' death at the cross, it seemed that the Jesus movement had been stopped. Only 125 of his disciples remained. Interest in Jesus fell off. But their claims of resurrection, inspiration from the Holy Spirit, miraculous events in Jesus' name, and their testimony caused the movement to grow to more than 3,000 men and women. And by the time we get to chapter 4, when we read about the Sanhedrin's arrest of Peter and John, the movement has grown to almost 5,000 men. Not just men and women. The court meant to execute Peter and John, and to stop the fledgling church in her tracks. Now the big idea today is this. The courage to witness comes from the Holy Spirit and not from within ourselves. The courage to witness 
comes from the Holy Spirit and not from within ourselves. Sharing the good news of God's love through Jesus for the world can be hard. We are not only met with external resistances, but we also have those internal resistances that never quite seem to end. They continue to nag at us. Neither of these obstacles need to hinder us, though, from living our lives from God and for witnessing to the good news of God's love for everyone. God has promised to provide us with a helper. The courage that we need to live for God and to witness to others comes from that helper, the Holy Spirit. If you'll open up your Bibles now to our text today, we'll be going through chapter 4 of Acts. And I want to begin by laying out some background for you. Just a reminder of where we were and what has occurred. In the previous chapter, Dr. Luke records that Peter and John went to the temple at 3 p.m., the last hour of prayer. And when they got there, they came upon a man who was lame from birth. He was begging for alms. And Peter turned to the man and said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. The man was miraculously healed in that moment. It caused a great stir among the people who were coming and going from the temple. Peter, sensing that this was an opportunity from the Holy Spirit, began to witness and to tell the crowd about God's love for them in the Messiah, Jesus. This is what led to the high drama in the high court that we will read about this morning. We come now to the arrest of the disciples at the beginning of chapter 4. There were 24 bands of Levites who guarded the temple at all times. Their job was to watch for anyone who might threaten to desecrate God's holy temple or to cause chaos and disorder in God's holy place. When the crowd was stirred by the miraculous healing of the lame man and the apostles began to witness, these bands of Levites noticed them and they sent for help to come and restore good order. Priests and temple guards and Sadducees were sent to confront and deal with the situation. No doubt the Sadducees were chosen because they did not believe in the resurrection, which was a very persuasive and effective argument in the witness of the early church. When these priests and guards and Sadducees heard Peter and John speaking to the crowd, teaching that Jesus is the Messiah and proclaiming Him risen from the grave, they were not just upset. The text says they were greatly disturbed. Acts 4.3 tells us why. It says, But many of those who had heard the word, believed. And the number 
of the men came to about 5,000. Again, that doesn't count the women. The church was growing because of this witness. Since it was almost dusk and they could do nothing, they arrested the apostles and held them in jail until the next morning. And that leads us to the high drama in the court. Early the next day, the high court of the Sanhedrin convened. They were to hear the complaint against the accused. It must have been intimidating for Peter and John. The defendants stood alone as 70 members sat in judgment upon them along with clerks and students. We have a picture. Can you, can you just imagine all those people around you and there you are alone? Let's read together now from verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? The question may seem benign, but it is not. In fact, these were highly trained lawyers. And they were laying a trap for Peter and John. The answer that they expected was meant to become the foundation for exercising the law in Deuteronomy 13. This is what it says. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. By their answer, the accusers were expecting to lay a foundation for sedition against God, punishable by death. Peter was a fisherman. He is untrained in the law. He is untrained in in arguing the law. He doesn't have a clue about how to handle this methodologically or philosophically or theologically. But he has the Holy Spirit. This Peter is the same man who previously, when Jesus stood before that Sanhedrin, trembled in fear and denied Jesus three times. Now he stands before them. He is not standing alone. He is standing in the power and the might of the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Spirit. And while he does not know what to say, the Spirit does. And speaks through Peter. Leading Peter to begin by first redefining 
the accusation against him. Essentially, they have said, this is sedition. And Peter says, no, it was an act of kindness to a lame man. It was fulfilling the law by doing good to one of God's children. It is only after this that Peter is moved by the Spirit to answer the question. Look at verse 10. Let's read that through verse 11. Well, actually, let's read it down through verse 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the peoples of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now notice what he's saying. Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man standing before you is well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. Now, just to pause real quick. Isaiah and Zechariah both refer to God placing a cornerstone among his people. It is a reference to the Messiah. And Jesus himself will quote this very verse that we are reading that comes from Psalm 118. And what he says is that the Messiah was rejected, but he is God's cornerstone that God is building his whole redemptive plan upon. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given men by which we may be saved. As Peter spoke, all that happened was as Jesus had promised. Jesus had assured his followers they need not fear. They need not worry about how to answer He said that his spirit would give them the words that they need. Listen. Read with me. He said to his disciples, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Peter and John stood there amidst the Sanhedrin, intimidating as it was, unashamed, unafraid, and unapologetic. They were filled with confidence and courage. Peter's boldness captured everyone's attention. After redefining the event as an act of kindness, he proclaimed the name of Jesus to heal. He declared Jesus had risen from the grave, that Jesus was the Messiah of God, the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan, and he proclaimed that salvation was only in his name alone. His accusers 
must have been furious and frustrated. They were eager to dispute these claims about Jesus. But standing beside Peter and John was the lame man who had been healed in Jesus' name. There was no explaining him away or twisting the facts to accuse them of following false gods. Their accusers were unable to withstand, refute, or contradict the Spirit's answer. With this, the court commands that Peter and John be taken away while they deliberate. Unable to press their accusations and arguments any further, they find themselves in a corner. Please read with me now verses 16 and 17. But when they had commanded him them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. This leads us now to the censure and the threats that would follow. The court called the defendants back in to hear their judgment. Peter and John were censured in order to no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. With their lives spared, you would think that they might be high-fiving one another and thinking, wow, we just got through a pretty tight spot. We're in great shape. We're relieved. But they were not relieved. They were not afraid. They were still under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They remained unashamed and unapologetic, confident and courageous. Caught up, not in thoughts about themselves or what might have happened to them, but actually caught up in living out their mission for God in fulfilling what God had placed within their hearts, in living for the living God and declaring Him and His Messiah and life for all who will profess Him as Savior and Lord. We read what happens in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Unable to exert their will, the court resigned itself to wait for another time. Any further punishment would have to come later. 
So how are we to think about all of these events and how are we to relate to them in terms of our own life and in terms of what God would do for us and have us live our lives for Him? To help us discern this answer, I want you for just a few more minutes to stay engaged in the story and to consider what Peter and John faced and to consider yourself perhaps having to face something similar. If you were brought before the high court of the Sanhedrin, would there be enough evidence against you, either circumstantial or direct, to accuse you of living for Jesus, witnessing to Jesus. I cannot say that is so for myself. From time to time, it's very true. But about my everyday life, I think not. I am often busy and concerned with my own thoughts, living my life, taking care of responsibilities, And I have lost that perspective. And I gave up that old life when I came to believe in Jesus on the cross so that God might live in me and live through me. And that should be my priority 24-7. How about you? Is there enough evidence against you, circumstantial or direct, to accuse you of living for Jesus? Witnessing to Jesus? Consider also this. If there was enough evidence to accuse you of witnessing for Jesus, and the court censured and threatened you, would they be relieved that they had silenced you? Or would they be furious with you? Because you were unrelenting in living for Jesus, in witnessing to Jesus. I think we'd all like to say we would be unrelenting like Peter and John. But I wonder if that is so. We are in many ways acclimated to our culture as Christians. And while we live out our life for God, and I have no doubt that those of you who believe in Jesus do so, but often it is tempered by a culture that says we have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And so, in our busyness and in this culture, we are not as challenged as Christians around the world. We are not as focused, therefore, upon making sure that we are living for Him, that we are witnessing to Him, that our life has been completely redefined by the gospel, His love for us. We are not busy every day reinterpreting our life and the events of our life 
in terms of the gospel so that we can see what God is doing in our lives and understand it in the terms of what God has put it in in terms of His Word and Scripture. Often, when we share a story about our lives, who is the hero of our story? Is it Jesus or is it us? Are we reinterpreting our life in light of Him or are we interpreting it in light of ourselves? Fear, worry, and self-consciousness often hinder our witness. Self-recrimination adds to our burden. So as I sit here and raise these questions, there are some of you that may be shaking your head and feeling very guilty. Don't do that. The accuser would love for you to just simply beat yourself up. There is a godly sorrow, but it leads to repentance and to change. And the truth is what sets us free. And if we will look at the truth about how our lives are defined and how we are living it out, And if we are living it courageously in terms of witnessing for Jesus, or if we are just busy most of the time about ourselves, if we can be honest about those things, then God can do a work in us and move us forward in living on mission for Him. In living that life that He promises us that will be full and complete and adventurous. It was interesting. Last night, um, I was at a wedding for one of the families in the church, and there were several of us sitting at the table, and we were talking. And someone who had not known my wife and I before we came here to church started to ask questions about our journey. And they, they said, wow, this is, that's a phenomenal story. You just left your other job. You didn't have another job. You didn't know where you were going. And I said, you know, the truth is, it's not any more phenomenal than most everybody. Those of us who believe are living our life courageously. We take those kinds of stances for God that cost us, but we often don't share that with one another, so we don't see that. And the stories that we tell then don't point to Jesus. What's so great about that conversation was I couldn't point to myself and Marcia couldn't point to herself and we couldn't point to how faithful we were. All we could point to was how faithful God was. He gets the credit. That's how you start to redefine your life in gospel terms. That you see what God is doing in those simple events. For you college students, in the events of the things that are going on God is in those things. He is moving you around and doing things with you and teaching you and building character. And you can see him in that. The high school students, the same thing. And for those of us where we're living in our neighborhoods or at work, God is in moving throughout it all. He is the living God. And we have this great privilege of living an adventure of life 
And his spirit is guiding and directing us the entire way. So let me say this about living your life on mission for God, witnessing to him. The Holy Spirit is our helper and our guide. And he will empower us to not only live beyond ourselves for Jesus, but to live courageously for Jesus. And we just need to keep remembering where that strength and source and courage comes from and leaning in to the Holy Spirit. Living out our faith in Jesus means that we're always ready to witness to Jesus, sharing our understanding of the Gospels. The Spirit gives us opportunity so that the world may know of God's love and care and power for their lives. It's not about wanting everybody to be like us. It's not about uh, a contest of winning souls. It's about sharing such good news of God's love and care and power for their lives. So it's our privilege, our honor, our joy to be able to share about Jesus with the world. We see this clearly in Acts 4. Peter and John and the rest of the fledgling church have reinterpreted their lives and they continue to reinterpret their lives and experiences through the lens of the gospel. They see God at work everywhere, busy. And they bring it to light for others. I can't imagine that Peter and John went to the temple that morning or that afternoon and said, hey, John, what do you think? Shall we heal a lame man when we get there? Maybe a blind guy? How's that going to work? Hey, now we got something to talk about with people. Good plan. Let's do it. I don't think that's what happened. But I do think they went to the temple expecting to meet God there, expecting that God would do something in a supernatural way, not understanding what that would be. And of course, I love Peter because he's so impetuous. He just doesn't think. He sees this guy going, alms, alms. Now, you and me, we might think, okay, if I go to him, you know, I could give you money, but that's not really going to help you. So let me give you what's really going to help you. In the name of Jesus, get up, walk. Most of us would be thinking, yeah, if I say that and that doesn't happen, what's going what's to happen then? Right? We're not expecting the supernatural power of God to do something necessarily. Peter, he just looks at him. He says, gold or silver I don't have, but what I do have, I give to you. Rise, walk. And the man did. And the stir that began, Peter saw that this was an opportunity to witness to Jesus. I'm sure people were asking questions. What, what happened? How did this happen? Who, who are those guys? What's going on? It was a perfect opportunity to reinterpret the events in a way that they could understand it, or not to reinterpret, to interpret the events in a way that they could understand it so they could see that God is on the move. That in Jesus, God is doing a great redemptive work. 
and there is hope for them. With the Holy Spirit to guide them, they trusted God to empower them so that they could join with God in revealing God to the world. And we can do the same. That's all that witnessing is. To just join with God. To trust that He will reveal Himself. And for us to help interpret that so that people can see God. Look here at the very beginning to Acts. If you have your Bible open, really look at verses 1 and 2. You're going to see that the disciples were doing three things. They were speaking in verse 1. They were teaching in verse 2. And they were proclaiming Jesus in verse 2. Speaking teaching, and proclaiming. This is how we witness to Jesus. How is it that you testify to to Jesus? How do you declare Him? How do you proclaim Him? How easy is it for you to just simply talk about Jesus? Most of us are very sensitive to a culture that challenges and at times even demeans us for our faith. We hold back for any number of reasons, afraid that we might just wreck this person's opportunity to come to faith because we might mess it up. These thoughts do not come to us from God. They come to us from the adversary who wants to thwart and stop our witness for Jesus. He wants the world to live in darkness, not light. Recently, 654, which was an event that our youth um, had titled A Week of Missions by them. They spent time at Northbrook Court, downtown Chicago, witnessing to complete strangers. Street evangelism is what it's called. Now, they were afraid. And rightly so. How many of you wouldn't be if I said, let's go over to Northbrook Court when we're done here and witness to the people there? How many hands would I have? One, two, three, four. Let's see. That's less than 4% here. Not a lot. Good for you. The good news was they were trained and they were prepared for how to work with the Holy Spirit and for how to approach people and for how to enter into discussion with them so that they could share their faith. And they went expecting the Holy Spirit to show up. And He did. In a little over four hours, they approached 79 strangers and asked, are you available to have a brief spiritual conversation. 32 people answered yes. 32 of 79 strangers answered yes. 
And they began by asking three simple questions. Do you believe in God? What do you believe about God? Do you believe there's an afterlife? And from those questions, it opened up an opportunity for them to witness, to share what they believed. But it was after they listened. Some people wanted to ask them what they believed, but others were willing to listen because they had listened to them. The Spirit used that to share the gospel with 32 people, complete strangers. What our youth discovered was that God's Spirit goes before us, that we can witness even to strangers, and it need not be daunting, because we have good news. They discovered that by asking questions and listening carefully, people were willing to not only share with them what they believe spiritually, but willing to listen to what they believed. How about you? So let, let's close by looking at three actions, three things that we can consider doing to make our witness for Jesus stronger. Number one, the courage to witness comes from the Holy Spirit and not from within. So ask the Holy Spirit to be filling you so that you can witness to others. And keep your eye on the Spirit. Second, look for or even be intentional about creating opportunities to witness to others. God is moving. You have an opportunity to share with them the good news if you'll just look for it. Or you may be intentional for, for a certain reason. I have a young man who um, I care very much about. I've known him for 10 years. We've talked about God, but I'm not sure that he believes Jesus is God. And I love to go shooting with him because it's a great time. You know, we're blowing up clay pigeons. It's a guy thing. It's easy. We sit and talk. And I just like to think of, okay, what's well, a good question that I can ask him while we're there afterwards, maybe having a soda, that can lead to another spiritual conversation that I can know a little more about him, and that maybe God can move that ball forward, because I'm not going to move the ball forward. You're not going to move the ball forward, but God is. We could be intentional about those things. And lastly, speak out of your experience before you get into teaching. Evangelicals so, so want to expound upon why we ought to believe in Jesus and what that's all about, the theology of it. That's good, and that has its place. But when we start to witness to Jesus, we ought to be witnessing out of our experience, speaking before we are declaring and teaching and proclaiming.
right? The key for us to share this good news with the world, to be courageous, is simple. Seek and rest in the Holy Spirit of God and trust that God is out there working and He will meet you each and every place and step of the way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, it's amazing to us that You have given us the Spirit not just to empower us to live our life for You, but to empower us in that living of our life for you, to literally go before us and to use us as partners in the good news of sharing the gospel with the world. We pray that the name of Jesus would be declared to all the world. We pray that all of our loved ones and all of our friends and all of our families, we pray that this village, this state, this nation, this world would all come to know the name of Jesus, that He saves, and that, Lord, they would be saved, that all would know You are God. To You be the glory and honor and power. Help us to live for You more fully and completely, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.